Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, racism and abject brutality at the U.S.-Mexico border, where thousands of Haitians are still caught in the racist violence of failed U.S. immigration policy. And we'll feature a special report on the imprisonment of human rights champion Kuran Pervez, a Kashmiri activist arrested by the Indian authorities under Indian counterterrorism legislation known as unlawful activities prevention. Yeah, we're going to look at that as well. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from the San Francisco Bay Area across the country on the Pacifica Radio Network. KPFA here in the Bay Area coming to you every night again at 5. We're delighted to have you with us. And we begin uh, with a very troubling situation that has everything to do with human rights and human rights in Kashmir. This is a story uh, that we don't know enough about as Americans what goes on in terms of uh, Kashmir and the uh, separatist uh, and the attacks, the violence against uh, the folks there. There's so many um, problems and it never gets enough publicity. We're joined by Athersia. Uh, she is a political anthropologist, poet, short fiction writer, and columnist. She's associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and Gender Studies program at the University of Northern Colorado. That's in Greeley. Uh, and uh, she has published widely, won many awards. Uh, Professor, it is good to have you with us on Flashpoints, uh, but the news is not good. Uh, tell us about Kuram Parvez. Uh, why was he arrested? And just give us a bit of the background, and then we're going to get uh, more heavily into the politics around Kashmir uh, and what's been going on for oh too long. Thank you so much, uh, Dennis, for shining a spotlight on Kashmir and uh, spotlighting Kuram's arrest. Uh, Kuram Parvez is a human rights activist. He is internationally renowned. He's the president of uh, AFAD, which is the Asian Federation for uh, Against Involuntary Disappearances. And he's also uh, the spokesperson and spearhead the Jammu Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society, which is one of the premier institutions uh, of human rights defense in Kashmir, and he's one of the renowned iconic figures. He's only 44 years old, very young, but in the last two decades, he's made a name uh, for himself and for created a niche for Kashmir. Um, he's done international collaborations with the United Nations, special rapporteurs, um, renowned human rights bodies where he has talked about Kashmir and uh, brought uh, attention to uh, the situation of Kashmir, which is, uh, you know, uh, wallowing in human rights violations for the last, uh, actively for the last 34 years, uh, but more so in the last 72 years under military occupation, which is not very well known to uh, most of the world, even though it's an international problem. So um, Kurum Parvez uh, was very recently arrested, uh, is, and he's now been shifted to one of the notorious jails uh, for a three-week custody, uh, which is the jail is named Bihar Jail. And there are many Kashmiri political prisoners already lodged there. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's under a draconian law that he has been uh, arrested. And uh, 
under the, you know, under a conspiracy, a terror funding. But the fact is that Indian government gets away with uh, branding Kashmiri uh, resistance, Kashmiri dissent, and the human rights violations and the defense that Khuram is doing. It gets away with uh, calling it terrorism and then, you know, punishing people who are uh, voicing the just uh, resistance and just uh, violations that are happening against Kashmiri people. Tell us a little bit about uh, more about the work he was engaged in uh, that got him arrested and uh, about what uh, that situation was all about. Why would uh, uh, the the government come down so hard at this point? Uh, uh, is it a touching moment in that history? Tell us a, a little bit more of that kind of background. Well, I think what has happened in the last one decade is that Kashmir issue has been re-internationalized. And I say re-internationalized because it's already an international issue. But for India, uh, it's very easy to tell the rest of the world that it's a domestic issue. Sometimes it is passed off as just an issue of a border with Pakistan or sometimes as an internal disturbance. But people like Khuram, who have been uh, uh, very active on the global stage with the uh, international human rights organizations and political organizations and creating solidarities around this uh, resistance movement, uh, especially through his work on human rights violations that have been committed by the Indian government, militia and army and paramilitary. Uh, right now, as we're speaking, there are more than 700,000 plus troops inside Kashmir, which, is, which makes it the world's densest militarized zone. And that's where Khuram was documenting and archiving he heads the Jammu Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society and also the Association of uh, Parents of Disappeared Persons. He's a spokesperson. He spearheads it. He's the coordinator. Basically, he mostly uh, does a majority of the work that needs to be done, which is why he is such an incredibly important figure in Kashmir. And um, uh, the work that his organization does is not only uh, creating these icons around human rights work, but it's also creating institutions. It's creating memory, which has been erased in the last uh, 34 years and actively, as I said, for the last 72 years by the Indian government, which is regarding Kashmiri resistance. So Khuram's work uh, essentially is documentation, archiving, and collaborating with world bodies regarding Kashmiri um, human rights violation and defense of uh, Kashmiri rights. But at the same time, he's a global figure because he's heading this organization, uh, which is uh, taking care of, you know, the Asian Federation Against Involuntary Disappearances, AFAD. It's an international rights organization based in Manila. So he does global human rights work as well. And he's very active with the United Nations. He's very active with other global bodies. So that makes India uncomfortable because it's not shining uh, only a spotlight into uh, Kashmir, but it's also creating these solidarities uh, which enable people to look into Kashmir from an angle which is other than what India tells them, which is actually the Kashmiri vantage. So in that sense, you have a global human rights defender uh, who is shining a spotlight on Kashmir and shining a spotlight on global human rights violations elsewhere. And uh, in a moment when India is uh, really drumming up support around uh, the global things that it's doing with the United uh, States and uh, creating other collaborations and uh, peddling its brand, India, which is uh, for the rest of the world, it says it's shining India and all of that. But what it, from a Kashmiri vantage, it's a neo-colonial state and uh, it is cracking down on Kashmiri resistance and Kashmiri um, you know, voices that are defending Kashmiri rights, political rights and human rights. And that's where uh, you know, the constant Khurram 
as a uh, in in the uh, casting Khoramen through this law, which is the UAPA, that, as you mentioned, is uh, erroneous. And even United Nations has come out with a statement that are rapporteurs who are there's a global outrage right now against his arrest, and uh, that is also creating a lot of discomfort within India. Uh, but uh, uh, since it's very brazen and spectacular in cracking down on Kashmiris. Uh, it seems like uh, all those, uh, all that outrage and protest is falling on deaf ears. Uh, but hopefully we will continue to persist and talk about this uh, till we draw our world's attention and make sure that uh, Khuram is set free, all political prisoners are set free, and Kashmir is taken cognizance of. People uh, are often concerned uh, when it comes to human rights uh, uh, and this kind of activism. It's not only the the person who's out on the front lines, but their uh, family and friends are in jeopardy. How is uh, how how are, are how are the family members here doing? Have they been threatened? What about friends? Uh, how have the authorities gone about trying to silence him more thoroughly? Well, the, uh, in the last uh, one decade, we have seen uh, the rise of this National Investigative Agency of India, which kind of cracks down on all kinds of uh, dissent and all kinds of resistance and basically all kinds of voices and expression in Kashmir. So Khurram has created uh, Khurram and his counterpart, Mr. Parvez Imroz, who is a human rights lawyer and uh, the founder member of the Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society, for which Khurram is a coordinator, they have not only created human rights documentation and ethos around human rights documentation, but they've also created an institution. They have created an ethos in Kashmir where you have lots of young kids and lots of young people trying to do this kind of work. And with what has happened to Khuram, not just in this year uh, when he was arrested some weeks ago, but also in 2016 when he was first arrested under this another law, which is called the Lawless Law, um, uh, by Industry International, no less. No less. Uh, and then he was released, um, uh, I think, 176 days later, and his uh, detention was called illegal by the High Court of Kashmir. And similarly, right now, the outrage around his uh, outrage around his uh, arrest um, is is very genuine, and there's lots of validation and endorsement for his work. But at the same time. India, the way it represses, because Kashmir is caught in this uh, imposition of a draconian Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which is imposed when the administration fails. It's basically shining a light on the colonial heart of India, the colonial constitutionalism of India, which uh, is uh, which uh, is enforced as an Indian military occupation inside Kashmir. So under that law, anyone is... Uh, suspect anyone can be picked up, arrested, detained, disappeared, killed, uh, you know, molested at any point in time. Uh, so that kind of fear already pervades Kashmir, Kashmir. But at the same time, when you are uh, also arresting and harassing and humiliating uh, bona fide, internationally renowned human rights activists, it does create a sense of fear amongst everyone. So not only the family, because the raids that happen. Uh, they not only happen at his office, they happen at his house as well. The electronic devices from the family were taken. His wife's electronic devices, including phones, were taken. So there is that fear of persecution. And same goes for other activists who right now are also under the fear because 
Uh, this is the second time the raid was, uh, uh, you know, the raid was uh, wrecked on his home and his office in October 2020. Uh, the first one had happened again, again through the National Investigative Agency, which has really become a dreaded name inside Kashmir. So that has created um, a sense of persecution. And I must mention uh, that uh, Kuram's arrest should be seen in context of the war on civil society, which very recently one of India's bureaucrats, top bureaucrats, who kind of like uh, is also its uh, you know national uh, security advisor, uh, he um, called the civil society as a future frontier of war. So basically, he kind of undermined the conventional ways wars is fought, wars are fought. So for Kuram and his counterparts, and not just Kuram as an activist, as a human rights defender, but thinking about the media and journalists inside Kashmir who have been booked under the same charges, but then they were let go. For Kuram, it's uh, more exacerbated because his work is uh, more rooted and it's more, uh, you know, it has a larger import, especially with what it has been able to do internationally. All right. Let, let me jump in here for a second and let people know you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're talking about Kashmir, uh, the arrest of a major human rights activist, uh, Karam Parvez. Um, we're, and we're uh, really lucky to be talking with uh, someone who knows a great deal about it, Professor Atherazia. Uh, she is a political, a political anthropologist, poet, uh, fiction writer, and uh, she is... Uh, a professor, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and Gender Studies in the program at University of Northern Colorado. That's in Greeley. And uh, I want to ask you now, you know, every story has a beginning. And uh, what I want to know is what, what are the the everyday issues well, what are the issues that were being raised that got this courageous human rights fighter uh, arrested what are the key issues here uh, take us uh, inside the borders and what the struggle looks like on the ground so what the day-to-day issues and what Kuram uh, Parvez documents is the human rights violations that are happening inside Kashmir, especially since 1991 onwards. In 1989, a, a popular armed struggle broke out in Kashmir, uh, which was, um, you know, uh, uh, a majority of it was for independent Kashmir and right to self-determination. A, part, a big section of it was for accession to Pakistan. And this is all basically the remnant of uh, what happened in 1947 when India and Pakistan got created. But Kashmir is an issue even before these two countries were created. So in that sense, Kashmiris have been demanding uh, a nation of their own. They actually had a nation of their own before India and Pakistan became two countries. Uh, but after the British leave the region, uh, you have to, uh, you know, United Nations comes in because there's a dispute around the region. Uh, by the logic of petition, it should have gone to Pakistan. So there is a lot of, uh, you know, conflict around that. And Kashmiris want their own uh, nation. So what ends up happening is that uh, after the division of Kashmir, so to speak, which was a temporary division till a plebiscite would have taken place, uh, right to self-determination, uh, depending on where Kashmiris wanted to go, which was never held. Um, at the same time, what ends up happening is that uh, Kashmir issue has been uh, taken to United Nations. Uh, it did start off as a Kashmir question, which later on got converted into an India-Pakistan question. And by the time 1916 arrives, it kind of goes into a cold storage. 
Uh, and mostly the world comes to know, and that's the narrative that mostly India created around it, was that uh, Kashmir is um, sort of a bilateral dispute between India and Pakistan, and slowly it got demoted from bilateral to just an internal dispute, and then uh, India began to call it a proxy war, uh, black and white quote-unquote proxy war with Pakistan. So Kashmir is uh, essentially sidelined, but, but by 1989, there's an armed struggle that, that is very popular. People are supporting it. And that emerges. Uh, side by side, you also have this intellectual cultural uh, movement that has been ongoing uh, from 1947 onwards, especially against India, um, where the resistance movement is by and large alive. Uh, where Kashmiris want their own uh, uh, nationhood. They want their right to self-determination, which has been promised by the United Nations. So what Khurram and his organization essentially does from 1989 onwards is documenting human rights abuses by the Indian government forces, the paramilitary, military, and also the militia. So the human rights violations don't occur in a vacuum. They occur connected to the political dispute. They occur because there is resistance inside Kashmir. There is a lot of dissent around uh, this uh, connection with India, that India enforces uh, de facto and de jure military occupation on Kashmiris, which is not known internationally as much, not because it's not an international issue, but because India has been able to get away with the narrative for the last 72 years that uh, Kashmir is not an issue and Kashmiris technically don't matter. But from 1989 onwards, we see Kashmiris getting vocal and uh, bringing their own selves into the limelight. Uh, there is an armed struggle, there is, uh, there is a political struggle going on. But at the same time, human rights violations by the Indian government forces are also increasing. They use uh, disproportionate forces, uh, not just against the armed combatants, but also against uh, civilians. And that kind of leads to a great human rights violations. Rape has been called a weapon of war by the, hum- by the Human Rights Watch. And even uh, in 2016... There was an uprising. A United Nations Human Rights Commission brought out a report, uh, again, uh, for which uh, Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society, which is headed by Khurram, uh, they uh, have contributed to that report. Uh, Khurram has been, uh, you know, very closely connected to United Nations. Uh, in fact, he was going to Geneva for a conference in 19, uh, sorry, in 2019, uh, 2016, when he was first arrested. So, so his day-to-day would look like documenting these uh, human rights uh, violations. And in 2011, in, uh, in 2008, 2009, and uh, by the time 2011 arrived, uh, you have this, uh, they were also able to unearth um, mass uh, graves and unidentified graves inside Kashmir, which are more than, uh, you know, if you kind of like look across Kashmir, more than 7,000 such uh, graves have been uh, discovered. So Kuram Parvez's organization is also pivotal to those reports. In fact, they, they discovered the mass graves and unidentified graves. So it is connected to grave human rights violations, which doesn't look good for India. But at the same time, it's not just human rights violations. If human rights violations were to go away tomorrow, Kashmir's situation would still be there. Kashmiris would still demand their right to self-determination. So human rights violations are connected to the political dispute. And that's what um, you know a Kashmiri day today looks like. Is this a, in any way a religious war? Uh, how would you um, 
explain uh, the differences in culture, and does that add to the to the uh, repression? Well, I would say overarchingly, from a Kashmiri vantage, it was not a religious war, so to speak. But Kashmiris are by majority Muslims. And uh, if we kind of look at history and go by the post-colonial logic, it should have gone to Pakistan because the logic of partition was that Hindu majority states go to India and uh, Muslim majority states, and especially Kashmir was contiguous to Pakistan. So if you see Azad Kashmir, which is independent Kashmir, the other side of Kashmir, uh, which is currently, um, uh, it's an independent autonomous entity, but it's administered by Pakistan. And this side, uh, you know, there's n number of vocabularies by which you refer to uh, the Kashmiris, the two Kashmiris. So by that, uh, from Kashmiri vantage, you also have Kashmiri pundits who live inside Kashmir, so you have Sikhs, you have Buddhists, so you have a lot of ethnicities and religions uh, that are uh, that have been living together side by side for centuries. But on the other side, if you look at uh, the current moment in India, which is very anti-Islam, which is also creating, uh, you know, there's like so many discriminations and so many uh, violations of political and civil rights of Muslims across India. In that sense, uh, we have to remember that Kashmiris are fighting against Indian constitution. Uh, but if you look at the Indian Muslims, they're fighting um, for their rights within Indian constitution. So these are two different matters, but the rubric can be, if we kind of look at it, the rubric is um, thinking about a majority a region which has a Muslim majority, which the current Hindu uh, supremacist government really from its moment of inception has been eyeing uh, to dilute, basically. And that's what has happened in 2019 when, so uh, from the moment of 1947 to 1949, when Kashmir was granted a special status within the Indian constitution, which was a truce that was drawn between the client politicians inside Kashmir uh, with the Indian um, uh, politicians. So by that time, uh, from 1949 onwards, what you have is basically dilution of Kashmiri autonomy by all governments. But in 2019, what the Hindu uh, supremacist BJP has been able to do is in a very spectacular, unilateral, militaristic fashion, which is uh, which was not as discreet as the previous governments, which of course were doing military aggression, but they were still kind of like, you know, using the uh, services of client politicians. But BJP just went all out and they, from 2019 onwards, they uh, de-operationalized the autonomy article. And what they are doing from that point onwards, which is they remove the territorial and the, the you know, uh, the territorial sovereignty of Kashmir. And what has happened from 2019 onwards is based on settler colonialism, based on influx of uh, uh, people from across India into Kashmir. So, you know, the domicile law that uh, protected Kashmiris and indigenous rights, that has completely gone away. Every day, I can't even count the number of laws and the statutes that change every day and that are changing everyday reality of Kashmiris that are dispossessing them every day. So, so that, those are the kind of like the broader religious angles, so, so to speak. 
You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are talking about Kashmir. I want to ask you in a more, uh, I guess, in a more personal way, what inspires you about the work of Mr. Parvez, who now uh, sits in a, uh Indian jail? What What is so important, uh, do you think, about his work, and how has he inspired you? Have you worked together directly? He's a very good friend of mine. We work directly. I I actually worked on uh, enforced disappearances for the last uh, 10, 11 years and uh, recently published a book as well. So in that sense, we have worked very closely. We are very good friends. Um, We come from the same uh, journalism school in Kashmir, uh, which we we got trained at the University of Kashmir. So um, I know him quite well and his work and I've seen him grow in stature in the last 20 years and I've seen him grow as a human being I've seen him grow as a human rights defender not just for Kashmiris but also for uh, the global community Uh, and I see his work is very important it's not just him it's an institution that he has created every day Kashmiris are undergoing so much erasure and that's this work becomes very important it's memory and I think he's a conscience keeper for Kashmiris and that's why you see that uh, you know that is also uh, reflected in what the global leaders the UN experts the international human rights uh, lawyers and leaders are saying about him so it, it's also the special quality that he has he he is very very meticulous in the work he does he's a he's a humanist to the core and he realizes that these stories are important and he realizes that uh, we need to document Kashmir uh, because uh, Kashmir, for the last 72 years, you haven't heard about Kashmir. That's because the dissent inside Kashmir was criminalized to such an extent that people were scared even to hold on to their memories. And I think in the last 33 years, since 1989 onwards, as the human rights abuses kind of grew exponentially, you had generations, you had people like Khurram come up. Uh, he is one of the leading figures, of course. And his work is very important for Kashmiri memory. It's a, Kashmir is a cultural resistance, if uh, anything, like before anything else. And his work becomes very pivotal for Kashmiris, for preserving memory, for documentation, and also making a political case for themselves. And um, we just have a couple of minutes left, and we don't have a really terrific line. But I know you're also a very talented and gifted poet. And I'm wondering uh, if you might want to share just a little bit of poetry uh, that reflects your feelings about the subject, about the situation, uh, maybe uh, about what's happening right now. Um, I'll probably uh, read a poem that kind of gives a reflection of uh, what's happening right now. It's titled In Kashmir, uh, Writing Under Occupation. They want us to write. They want us to write in blood and only write of peace. They capture our land, make us sow rice that is not seed, kill us, rape. They tell us we are ungrateful, like children who do not see what is good for them. Holding us with many kinds of guns, they grimace at the world calling our blood on their faces, vermilion. They sell pens. We buy with blood. Many of them from their mythical land come to us with clean hands softened in the Ganges. They meet our eyes that gaze, which through you 
goes elsewhere. Behind their orange irises, you see wheels turning like the innards of a Swiss watch, precise, surgical. They sell paper, so much paper, we buy with blood. They put the kettle on boil, it whistles the seduction of tea. There is no better heaven, our pens poised, the next word will liberate. An orgasmic lull prevails, the next sentence always an arrival, like the justice thing. Meanwhile, Ashwak is no more. Makbul has gone. Asya and Nilo for raped, then killed. Afsal hangs, Sofel buried in two graves. The Ithar cellar in Lalchok disappeared. Kuram, jailed. The Ithar cellar in Lalchok disappeared. They found his bones with empty bottles. The kettle whistles. The tea never comes. Our bones are made tired, waiting. Before the door of law, from that overused Kafka tale, the only thing that grows after this weight are their swords, looming mightier, and this too we write. They exhort us to write and write in blood of peace, of tulip gardens they grew on soils made fertile with our flesh and bones, and write when they are at war with us. Thank you. Thank you. If people want more information about this situation, maybe they want to get engaged, involved, supported in some way, how, what's the best way for people to find out more? So um, there is an organization called Stand With Kashmir that uh, has been active uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, they have action items and they have a lot of uh, things that people can get involved in. And then we're also, um, I'm also uh, giving you the name for Kuram's website, freekuram.com. It should be ready in a couple of days and it will have some action items for people to work on. Uh, there are sub- So we will have all the updates. And then we also have a free Kuram, uh, free Kuram um, ca- campaign on Twitter. Uh, so that's, that's where most of the action is. And uh, if possible, you could carry that on your website and people could click on that and we will have more for them. Well, uh, we thank you for taking the time out. Uh, We hope you'll come back and keep us posted. And uh, we really do appreciate the poetry as well, because at a certain point, uh, the news story only goes so far. And we need the poet and the poem uh, to take us uh, a little bit further into the subject and the meaning. So thank you for that as well. Stay safe. Please keep in touch with us. Thank you so much, Dennis. You're welcome. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a two-minute break. When we come back, we're going to turn our attention to what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, what's happening with the Haitians, what's happening in terms of uh, forced migration. It is a violent, dangerous situation based on racist violence of a failed U.S. immigration policy. We will not take our eyes off this. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I just want to say before we move on uh, to the border is that last segment was produced by Tara Tarabji. Tarabji. Tara Tarabji, a wonderful producer here at KPFA and Pacifica and a wonderful human being and a great advocate and a lovely poet. And we thank her for all the good work on that segment and she's done on that story and uh, making sure that all of us uh, at Pacific here at KPFA are aware of what's been going on. So, Tara, thank you. A bow <laughs> to you. Beautiful work. You're listening to Flashpoints. We turn our attention uh, to the U.S.-Mexico border to... Uh, uh, I don't know, Camilo. Uh, uh, joining us is uh, Camilo Perez Bustillo. Uh, he's a visiting professor of human rights and social justice at National Taiwan University. He works closely with the incredibly important and uh, active, important activist group Witness at the Border. Um, and um, he's a legal scholar who's uh, fought these uh, private prisons uh, right at the front gates. Um, Camilla, welcome back. I, I don't even know where to start. This has obviously been on our front burner, but the 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 nature of the U.S. immigration system, the deportations, the essentially the erasing uh, of the possibility of applying for asylum. I, at, at every level, in every direction, the Biden administration has taken Trump and moved it one step uh, closer to uh, what? Total uh, torture uh, and sort of like a, a torture and deportation program. Yeah, you know, I think we do have to move, step back a bit, a bit and, and kind of put this into into context and and connect it to what, what we just heard. I mean, that beautiful poetry and advocacy and activism that is at another border, you know, the border between India and Pakistan. That's what the, what the Kashmir struggle is all about. Let's think about what's going on today at the U.S.-Mexico border and put it in that broader framework. Today... The Biden administration is reactivating this program that we refer to as, quote, remain in Mexico. And the official name of the program, and this is like really Orwellian, it's called the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP. So this is a program that's dressed up in all of this humanitarian rhetoric under the new administration that we know already when that program was implemented under Trump, the exact same program, that it produced death and injury to thousands of migrants, putting them in precarious conditions on Mexican soil to await the processing of their asylum cases. So let's just break this down for a minute. What this means as of today is that the Biden administration is giving continuity to a Trump administration policy that makes it impossible to apply for asylum on U.S. soil. If you're at the U.S.-Mexico border and you try to seek asylum, you are going to be sent back to Mexico, 
sent back from the frying pan into the fire, into the maelstrom of human rights horrors in Mexico. And we have already seen this implemented on the ground. This is actually the origin of Witness at the Border as an organization. We were at the U.S. border, camped out for over 60 days between January and February 2020 to watch this program in action. We were in the immigration courts, what were called the tent courts, set up on the lawn at the line between Brownsville and Matamoros in Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. And we observed those courts in action and how in case after case, they shipped people who were fleeing in fear from their home countries back to Mexico to even worse conditions than the ones they'd escaped. That's what's beginning again today. It's um, it's really uh, you, you set back is certainly not a strong enough word. Uh, anybody who expected uh, that there be some progress uh, with the new Democratic administration, I guess, is thoroughly given up now. And the 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 hatred, particularly the the racism. And the hatred against Haitians and black people is 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 really ugly. You've got uh, a certain kind of brutality we're hearing more and more about, Camillo, in terms of the U.S. prisons, private and whatever, in terms of the particularly brutal treatment, racist treatment of Haitians, because um, we're hearing that because they're not speaking either English or Spanish, um, they're, uh, you know, it's assumed that uh, since they're not responsive, uh, they're, they're resisting and they deserve some more brutality. I mean, say, say a little bit about the overall situation. How, what, what do we know about, for instance, how many deportations there are a day? How many hundreds, thousands of people are being deported? Are they still being deported with their hands cuffed uh, to the seats uh, as criminals? What do we know about that process? You know, if you go to our website, witnessattheborder.org, you can see the newest report we just posted yesterday, which is called the Ice Air Report which documents every deportation flight that's taken place during the last month and during the last 12 months. This report compiles all the data from this year. This is during the Biden administration. And that's where we have to zoom out and think about what's going on today and what's going on through these deportation flights and what it tells us about this administration and where it's been and where it's going. We can tell you based on that report, which is the way we compile it is through tracking the flight of each group that is deported, that there have been 5,810 flights over the last 12 months. 634 of those were in November. These are the flights that take people back to danger in the same way the policy being reactivated today does. It's the same logic. 
In other words, if you fled Haiti because life was impossible, made impossible by U.S. impositions and U.S. intervention, and you sought protection in the U.S., you were sent back. Over 12,000 Haitians have been sent back to Haiti to danger since September, since that crisis that was at Del Rio that produced those images that so many of us saw and were indignant about of Border Patrol agents using their reins of their horses as whips and corralling Haitians back to Mexican territory. That's essentially what's happening today with MPP, but it happens every day through these flights, the so-called ICE air flights. These are the flights that we call death flights. And when we were down at the border in January and February 2020, right before, you know, when the the pandemic broke, observing what was going on with MPP, we were also on the ground at the Brownsville Airport tracking these flights. And that's when this process began of documenting these deportations. So the bottom line is this. What the Biden administration has done is shift the rhetoric, but give continuity to all of the worst features of previously existing policy. And this has been consistent for 30 years in U.S. immigration and border policy. It's a bipartisan game. And they are much more in sync with each other on both sides of the aisle, sadly, than they are with the rights of the people affected. And that's why we do this work. There are now dozens of human rights organizations and humanitarian organizations that work at the border like us that have issued a statement denouncing the Biden administration's reinstatement of its program as a violation, not just of U.S. law, the U.S. Refugee Act of 1980, but of international law, where one of the most basic rights is the right to seek asylum, to seek protection. And that is now in practice being negated at the U.S.-Mexico border on both sides. Because the other key piece to this is that this could not happen without the cooperation of the Mexican government and Mexican authorities. Because what this is going to do is recreate, for example, the migrant camp where we were based in January and February of 2020 on the Mexican side in Matamoros. That's the camp from which Oscar and Valeria, remembered in Martina Spada's extraordinary poem that you've shared before, that's where they left trying to get to the U.S. They were leaving that camp. So all of this is connected. And uh, just to sort of... Uh put a cap on the other end of those flights to Haiti, we have now seen pictures of panicked, of frantic Haitians being beat back after they're trying to get back on the plane because they definitely don't know what the hell they're going to be doing in Haiti except perhaps being pursued and murdered. So you've got got U.S. officials and Haitian officials beating people uh, once they manage to get them out of the plane. So that is taking place. And what happens Well, where all of us are uh, waiting in Mexico for asylum? What happens to to um, those folks there? Are they what happens? What's the what's the go on? 
Right. And that's why these camps arise, right? That like the migrant camp I just mentioned on the Mexican side. You know, what we're going to have, like we began to have two years ago, is a string of refugee camps along the U.S.-Mexico border on the Mexican side, gradually filling. You know, the program was reactivated today. It's going to gradually kick in during the next few days, the next few weeks. We'll gradually see this happening. And what we'll see is this string of refugee camps on the Mexican side. And there's supposedly a time limit set of about six months, about 180 days for these asylum uh, applications to be processed. But the bottom line is this. You know, the, the Biden administration is trying to dress this up again with humanitarian rhetoric that sounds good. And supposedly the Mexican government, you know, exacted some concessions in terms of humanitarian concerns and, you know, the conditions that migrants are going to be in. But we know that in practice, it didn't work before and it isn't going to work now. And I can share with you the words of the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, what he said about MPP just a few months ago when he said that it was a program that violated human rights and that was not effective. And yet that program is now being reinstated under his supervision. And Biden, uh, in a recent press conference, I think it was yesterday, said he, or the day before he was asked specifically about the policy, said absolutely he has no regrets. I believe that was the word. He has no regrets about the unfolding policy. They were they were left with a bad uh, situation, and they've been working nonstop to make it better. That's the Biden administration. Right. Well, what Mallorca said in his memo was October 29th. This is a quote. MPP, the program that's being reactivated, had endemic flaws, imposed unjustifiable human costs, pulled resources and personnel away from other priority efforts, and did not address the root causes of irregular migration. This is Secretary Mallorca, and he said, MPP not only undercuts the administration's ability to implement critically needed and foundational changes to the Immigration Center, it fails to provide the fair process and humanitarian protections that individuals deserve under law. He signed that memo on October 29th. And today, on December 6th, he, under the aegis, of President Biden is reactivating that very same program. Now, they say they're doing it because there's a court order, but the court order does not say, for example, that not only should they reactivate the program, but expand it. What they have already announced they're doing as of today is not only reinstating the program, but expanding it to include anybody from anywhere in the Western Hemisphere who seeks to apply for asylum, for example, including Haitians. So it's not going to be limited as it was before, essentially to asylum seekers coming from Spanish-speaking countries in Central America. It's now being expanded throughout the region. 
And uh, as we would say in my old neighborhood, uh, that essentially makes Biden a candy-ass liar in public. Not even he, – he, he's simply uh, sustaining a program that he is well aware is causing tremendous suffering. And it is a, another increment uh, in the sort of democratic side of sustaining this long-term policy, which is one president after another, which is uh, if you make it tough enough for them, if you make them suffer enough, if you make it painful enough and dangerous enough, they won't come. But that's the big lie, isn't it, Camilla? Because they don't have a choice. And that's literally the policy that you just summarized. It's called prevention through deterrence. It's the official doctrine of the Border Patrol since its strategic plan was adopted in 1993. Almost 30 years now, that has been the governing framework of U.S. border and immigration policy. Make the journey as difficult as possible. Make migrants suffer as much as possible. Increase the number of migrants who die and are assaulted and are injured and are raped and violated and kidnapped along the way. Let's talk specifically about Mexico right now. Just last week, there was a U.N. mission to Mexico investigating the issue of mass disappearances. That commission issued a statement at the end of its visit on November 29th. This is on the U.N. website saying that there are over 95,000 cases of unsolved disappearances on Mexican territory, primarily of Mexicans because they don't even include migrants in that total. At the same time, Mexico's Human Rights Commission issued a report that it presented to the U.N. investigators indicating that over 70,000 migrants have been trafficked or kidnapped on Mexican territory. So put those numbers together and think about what that means for the individual migrants who are now, because of this policy being reactivated today by the Biden administration, being returned to Mexican territory against their will, instead of being offered the possibilities of international protection that asylum would provide. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Camilo Perez-Bustillo. Uh, he is, uh, well, he is, uh, among other things, he has been fighting uh, the vicious nature of the uh, racist uh, lack of immigration policy on the part of the United States government for many years uh, through. Uh, we have been talking about this through Trump and now through Biden and uh Obviously, uh, this is not getting better. Um, it is interesting uh, and worth noting, uh, Camillo, in the midst of all this, there was an election in Honduras. Uh, and so far, the United States hasn't come in to install another right wing um, uh, so-called president to force more people out of the country. But it is a positive step. 
perhaps, because we all know that Honduras is one of those countries uh, that was uh, bleeding its people based by the incredible suffering caused oftentimes by U.S. foreign policy, um, uh, a small hope there? Absolutely. I mean, a a very important window of hope. And hopefully we'll have something similar in Chile. The elections are coming up on December 19th. It's really important to stress that in the case of Honduras, the uh, opposition forces that won this election, the center left in Honduras, are the same forces that were overthrown by the coup in June of 2009, which was under Obama and under Hillary Clinton's State Department. And the U.S. was complicit in consolidating military power and the power of the current dictatorship that's still uh, holding office there as a result. And so we're beginning to see perhaps the reversal of that and a driving force in the election in Honduras was the question of massive uprooting of force migrants, you know, the the massive scale of forced migration from Honduras because of the depredations of the prior regime in alliance with the U.S. Hopefully that will change within the next couple of months. But of course, the underlying conditions go much deeper. So it's not likely to diminish in the short run the number of migrants. And there are going to continue to be tens of thousands of people if not from Honduras, from El Salvador, and especially from Guatemala, from Haiti, who will continue to come. And that's what this policy is all about. I mean, essentially, the Biden administration is choosing, it's more important to the Biden administration to hold the line at the border, so to speak, through these kinds of policies, because it's worried about the midterm elections coming up in a year, than it is to respect the rights of the people affected. And that's why we need you to join with us to stand with witness at the border. Please come find us at witnessattheborder.org and on Facebook. There's a Facebook group. We have over 16,000 members, Witness at the Border, and join in the effort of solidarity and consciousness in defense of basic rights at the U.S.-Mexico border and on Mexican territory for these migrants who the U.S., as of today, is going to begin to send back potentially to their death. All right. Anything else we need to know? Any other information we might gain from anything else you want to share with us, Camilo? The other thing is, you know, December 8th, in a couple of days, is the anniversary of the death in custody of a Mayan indigenous girl named Jacqueline Cal Makin back in December of 2018. We are going to be remembering Jacqueline Cal Makin and the other indigenous children and indigenous migrants at the border through a webinar that's organized through the International Mayan League. Look them up on Facebook and online. International Mayan League. The webinar is on December 8th. Please join us to honor the memory of Jacqueline Kalmakin and to honor the struggle and to stand in solidarity with the struggle of indigenous migrants at the border. Over 40% of the kids who were held at Tornillo, 
which is where witness the supporters began at the Tornillo detention facility for migrant youth near El Paso. Over 40% of those kids were Guatemalan, and most of them were indigenous. And in the last few months and the last few years, the largest increase of migrants has been from Guatemala, from the poorest indigenous communities that were the same communities that were targeted by U.S.-backed genocide in the 70s and 80s. So stand with us, just as we need to stand with Haitians and against the racism directed against them, all of the white supremacy that's embedded in U.S. immigration and border policy, the same forces operate against indigenous migrants at the border, failing to recognize their culture, their languages, and the reasons why they are fleeing their communities, which are attributable ultimately to U.S. policy and the policy of its allies in the region. Thank thank you so much, Camilo Perez-Bustillo. We always appreciate the incredibly important information. Please keep us posted and stay safe, all right? Thank you, Dennis. Un abrazo, everybody. Thank all right. you. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And guess what? Uh, that wraps it up for another edition of this show. Uh, we come to you every weekday from 5 to 6. Check us out. That's it for us now. Adios. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rada Keel. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.